every Arizona homeowner's best friend. And it all has to do with you. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Inch by inch, row by row, gonna make this garden grow. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the Outdoor Living Hour. Third Saturday of the month, we have Jay Harper in talking about landscape and gardening. And if you follow along our home maintenance calendar, you'll see that today for June 19th, we're talking water for survival, making it through the summer, making sure your plants survive the summer heat. We're already into uh, halfway through June, which is generally the hottest month anyway. So if you've got something that's already starting to wilt or something that's showing stress, uh, you know, today would be a great opportunity to kind of, to use a horrible pun, soak in some information about correct watering because most people still don't do it right. And uh, Jay, before the program, you were mentioning remembering a drought back in the 50s and Roosevelt almost being dried. Well, I don't remember it, but I've read about yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you remembered reading in about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, we. Uh, in fact, with you know that drought, I think uh, was started in the early '40s and went through the mid '50s. So it was a it was a doozy. Uh, so this isn't uncommon. In fact, this is why, you know, the our forefathers, our early settlers of this valley, built. The dams that we have, because they knew we would face periods of long periods of drought, uh, and we needed to store water in anticipation of that, if we wanted to have any chance of having a, a thriving city, thriving agriculture, thriving urban populations. That we had to store up water. Um, you know the whether it's true or not, but the early settlers, the Hohokams that built the canals, if you've been to Francisco Grandi, and in a lot of our current canals, or some of them, I don't know if a lot of them, but some of them are actually in the same places that those um, ancient people built canals, but they, they didn't have any storage. They could divert water out of the river, you know, into their canal system, bring water into, you know, the flatter... Uh, tillable areas and grow food, but once they got into a severe drought, which they think, you know, 1100-ish, uh, there was a very severe drought. Well, there was no water stored up. They had no water to put in their canals. And so, you know, we're sitting here, you know, with a pretty severe drought and Roosevelt Lake, you know, our, our entire Salt River system is you know, 80%, something like that. Roosevelt's at 70 And that's 70-some percent of the new dam. That's not of the old height. So, you know, what an amazing system they developed uh, in the early part of the 1900s to, so that we can make it through periods of that. That's not to say we shouldn't and can't, don't have to be careful, but uh, we do because, you know, if it goes for another 10 or 15 or 20 years, I mean, we're going to dip into that water pretty heavily. So we gotta we got to watch what we're doing. But the fact that they developed these storage reservoirs uh, is a pretty amazing feat. That tree ring study uh, from U of A indicated that Hohokam drought, uh, they think, was about 60 years. It was like 1118 uh, to 1181 or something, roughly like it was 61 years of drought. 
Uh, so for, uh, hopefully we're not in for another 60-year drought, but we're in. Well, some people would say this drought that we're in has, you know, we've been in for almost 20, 20 years, years based on some reports. Point. Yeah. Now, so maybe we're almost done. Maybe we're almost done. We'll it, see. History but, repeats itself. It's a well, cycle. We live in the desert. And it won't and, be the last one yeah, uh, yeah. once it re- uh, recovers from a few heavy years of snowpack and rainfalls. So, and you also mentioned that, you know, the whole comes, they were diverting the water from the canals for flood irrigation. And that's what a lot of what the early development of Phoenix was, was flood irrigation mm-hmm. for crops. Well, we've built over a lot of those farm fields. Uh, we've changed how we're w- watering the farms and the fields. Not everything's flood irrigation anymore. And Phoenix, Arizona, uh, the entire state, is using about the same amount of water as we were 50 years ago. We've replaced, you know, a tremendous amount of farm ground with with housing and commercial development, which doesn't use anywhere near the amount of water uh, that agriculture does in those cases, especially now with the efficiency in the way we we do water things and low water use landscape. And then farmers have also... Uh, you know, they they do uh, – uh, I have a customer in Yuma that's a date grower, and they, they before they water, they take a probe and they stick it down three or four feet deep. He's only, he told me the other day they're only going to – they only will have to water these date trees like two times between now and fall when they harvest. Well, that's pretty amazing. Uh, certain crops that now instead of just – well, you know, we're scheduled for water every two weeks or once a month or whatever. No, they they test the moisture in the soil. Uh, they do water testing on pecan groves and a lot of places. So they we don't just water willy-nilly anymore. We water when it makes sense and when plants need it uh, in agriculture and in the urban setting. So what's that mean for the homeowner tuned in today is that, you know, I still see our fair share of water going in the gutters, um, you know, so we need to be careful with lawn sprinklers and lawn sprays and even drippers. I, you know, I've seen drip irrigation. We've got a lot of drip irrigation systems out there that are 20, 25, 30 years old. That black polyethylene pipe that's underground is failing. And, you know, they're starting to get cracks and leaks and you need to pay close attention to that, you know, to see if you're wasting a lot of water. Well, you can waste an awful lot of water if you're drip, especially those that really know how to use drip properly and run it for four, five, six, eight hours. Well, if you got a leak in a main, you know, in a half-inch line at four or five or six hours, that's a lot of water going where it doesn't need to go. Uh, lawn sprinklers. We've, we've, we've developed some amazing uh, new technology in, in pop-up sprinkler heads with the MP rotators, the low-volume heads that aren't affected by wind so much you know they put on low volume amounts of water so that it it only goes where it needs to go you know in bigger draw you know and the, they're the ones that look like you know it's coming on little fingers or rotating in your grass um, as opposed to just a constant spray of fine mist of water that gets blown all over the place if you if you're watering when the wind is blowing of course drip irrigation has been around a long time uh, if used properly, it it can save a lot of water. And when you're talking about water where it goes on a leak, sometimes it can even just be misplaced water for the drip. I've got a neighbor. I don't know if it's on purpose, 
but it, it doesn't drip. It's a stream that comes out. Mm. You can actually see it physically going up in the air, but it shoots right onto the trunk of the tree, mm. and the well is about 18 inches around the trunk, and it's a mesquite tree that's got a canopy of about 25 feet. First of all, that's not where the water needs to go. It right. needs to go out to the drip edge. And second, you're going to rot out your root bulb. Well, or, or the next good monsoon storm, because those roots aren't anchoring that tree sufficiently, it's, gonna, it's a candidate for getting blown over. And most established uh, native trees, you don't need to do a lot of uh, irrigation. Or on any. It. That thing comes on yeah. two, three times. Yeah. The biggest pl- tree on our property since we uh, moved in over 10 years ago is a Palo Verde we didn't plant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our uh, desert trees are very opportunistic, given a fair amount of water. They'll grow like crazy. And and they're opportunistic in the fact that they can gather water from a lot, you know, make use of whatever moistures are available. So if you're watering, you know, a lawn or some other plants nearby and those root systems happen to make it to those spots, you know, then they'll really proliferate in those areas. And sometimes it can make it tough to grow other things there because they're gobbling all the water up. That's why our ranchers in southern Arizona blade or chain or you know, take out a lot of mesquite so they can grow grass because the mesquites will gather more water than the grass plants can. So that's another thing, making sure you're only watering plants that you like. Don't be watering a dead plant. You know, and even as small a thing as we've talked about this before, trying to keep a, a doggone tomato plant alive through the summer so that you can take advantage of maybe getting a head start next fall or winter is really foolish you know it's fool's gold i think you know those plants grow fast plant a new one you know, you know and save that water grow you know trying to grow that tomato plant through the summer you have to shade it and babysit it and do all that silly nonsense to to get a plant to grow when it shouldn't be growing so just just my opinion <laughs> my soapbox one of mine is is use of grass in unnecessary locations down the middle of the street in the median they've got palm trees Mm-hmm. and grass and the median's probably not 18 inches wide and their sprinklers come on and it, it all it does is flood the street it's like yeah certainly you know those old areas that were done in the probably the 60s or 70s when you know we weren't paying probably nearly the, the attention we should have been to some of that stuff. How'd you like to maintain that? How'd you like to be the poor guy that has to mow that 18-inch <laughs> strip of grass and then edge it? It's, it's a total pain in the rear. But uh, yeah, so you know, the whole concept of zeroscaping is, you know, landscaping to fit a lifestyle. Um, you know, if you don't have kids or dogs, you don't need any grass, and that's the beauty of artificial turf. If you still want that look, but you don't really need grass, you know. Consider consider doing that. If you've got little kids, though, and dogs and animals and pets, you know, you need a good lawn to play on and, and recreate and and uh, have a safe place for them to be. So there's a place for all of it. Just don't do what you don't need to do. And watering it properly is a big, important part of it. Overwatering it is uh, something we'll talk about, how, how to know how much water to apply. Not everyone's got a soil probe that check their date palms to calculate exact water moisture but there are things and tools we can do as homeowners that can help you uh you know be as efficient as you can with your water and we'll spend uh, a good part of the hour talking about that right here rosie on the house 
Continuing our conversation here on Watering for Survival through the Arizona and Southwest Desert Summer. A little bit of a drought season we had this uh, week in particular. Uh, how many days over 110? I think they all were. Last year? Yeah. No, this week. Oh, this week, yeah. Well, yeah, a, a good stretch. And hopefully it's not a repeat of last year. But it is what... Generally, the experts will tell you you got to have in June to get the monsoons going in July is get that heat pump going, and that you know starts pumping that moisture that gets that whatever it is the high pressure and gets in the right place and all that stuff. So let's hope that happens shortly and lasts a long time this year. We uh, we are in desperate need of moisture in the whole state. We've got fires already going this week some bad ones and um hopefully that's not a just a tale of things to come but uh keep our fingers crossed and our prayers in the air (laughs) and if we're you're looking at your landscape garden plants trees and something's looking a little stressed um you know it might mean a little more water or um if you're concerned about the water maybe it means you need to replace that tree with something a little less water using. So this is a great time to evaluate things. If Again, don't be watering a plant you don't like or doesn't look good to begin with. Pull, let's get rid of it. Cap the dripper till fall until or till you make a decision on what you want to do. Let's be a little more proactive taking bad, ugly, uh, or misplaced plants out of the landscape and replace them with things that are more appropriate. Uh, you know, I th- let's also think about mulching, um, you know, putting a layer of organic shredded bark, mulch, something to help keep that moisture in the ground longer, keep the roots of that plant cooler. I, I often equate mulching to putting a wet rag on the back of your neck mm-hmm. when it's really hot. It just lowers your body temperature. Well, lowering the soil temperature to plants and holding moisture there. It just just is a life-saving at some point. Those plants will go a lot longer, um, you know, between waterings. If we do have really hot stretches, days that it's 115, uh, you know, that means that. So if it's 115, we figure at 10 o'clock it's going to go up 10 degrees. It's 105 degrees already at 10 o'clock in the morning if the high is 115. And it's probably still about that at 10 o'clock at night. Mm. You know, and it's still in the hundreds anyway. So plants have a very hard time recovering. So if you can keep those soil temperatures down and keep that moisture more consistent in the soil so it doesn't just dry out, boom, and you have to water and replace it, and then it dries out quick, allows those plants to have a period of recovery uh, and get through those really brutal times a lot easier. So that brings up an interesting question. Is it better than to water at night in the summer? Which can be hard to uh, know if you've got leaks because (laughs) unless you're walking around the next day and looking for excessive wet spots or using a soil probe. Well, with drip irrigation, if you're not spraying water, um, it probably doesn't really matter because you're, you're, you're trying to water enough to get the, the soil wet to a certain depth that, the plant won't dry out quickly anyway. If you go to the uh, AMWA 
Arizona Municipal Water Users Association website and click on that watering by the numbers guide, it will tell you based on the size of the plants how much water, how many gallons of water that plant will need to, to wet the root ball to a certain depth. It's efficient way to water. So if you've got a plant, a shrub that's small shrub, you need to get it a certain depth. If you've got a big tree, get it a certain depth. Well, you can then, if you know how many gallons it takes to do that, and you know your drip system is putting on X amount of gallons an hour, then you know how long you need to run that drip system to deliver that much water to that plant. Now, you got to make sure the drip emitters are working properly. you got to make sure you got enough of them around the canopy of the plant, those sorts of things. And those are all things you should be doing, well, if, if you were really on top of it, you should have already done before now, like in May when it was cooler. Now you're out there when it's hot, and you might have plants that are stressed already because you weren't getting the water deep enough so that they could survive long enough. What people end up doing with drip irrigation systems, though, is using them like a conventional old bubbler or flood irrigation system. They run them pretty frequently, and they don't run them very long. If you have a drip irrigation emitter that, let's just say, somewhere between one and four gallons an hour, and you run it for 20 minutes, well, that's a third of an hour. So that's somewhere between a third and one and a third gallons of water that you're putting on that plant. Well, take a, take a gallon milk jug full of water and go dump that on that plant and see what that does for you. It's not very much water. Um, but if you'll do that, and let's say you put 10 or 15 or 20 gallons of water on that plant over several hours, then go out after three or four or five days. And, and you don't need a, an expensive soil probe to do the piece of rebar anything that can be driven into the ground or pushed into the ground. Number one, if you can push it into the ground pretty easy, it's probably still fairly moist. Um, if you have to hammer it in, you can still pull it out and see how moist or dry the dirt is. If you can't get it in the ground at all, it's probably pretty dry. <laughs> uh, now, that can be deceiving, um, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, soil probes a little bit more after uh, the bottom of our news break. We can do a lot of things, but we can't stop the clock. Water, the key to life here in the desert southwest. Welcome back to Rosie on the House. If you're just joining us, we're talking about watering for survival, our plants and landscapes through the hot Arizona summer. And we're going to talk about soil pros because they really will change your life. But before we get to that, somebody out of U of A that has been studying two acres of saguaros wrote an article just about how this year, Instead of seeing blossom on the very top of right, the saguaro, right. it's kind of coming around the, the edge of it, like a crown around the side. And after I read that, I started looking at saguaros, and sure enough... I've seen some with blooms several feet down from the top on the sides as well. Yeah. And he's been studying this two acres of saguaros for over 20 years and says he's never seen this and thinks it might be an indication of last year's drought and the saguaros 
survival coping mechanism? Well, one thing we know for sure, plants, when faced with pretty severe stress, will try and flower more and set more fruit. Consequently, then they produce seed in the fruit so that the next generation, you know, there's seed there if that plant happens to die. So people call up sometimes their citrus trees are blooming in the fall if they've had a really bad summer and maybe they didn't water them properly or they haven't fertilized them properly and that plant is severely stressed, citrus will, will, will bloom in the fall. They oftentimes won't set any of that fruit, but it's just their attempt to try and survive, to set, to set fruit and seeds for a, a, a succession plant that will take its place if it dies. So it's, it's a complete possibility. I don't know anything more about saguaros than anybody else as far as that goes. But I have noticed the, the blooming down the sides of the, of the uh, cactus. And, and you would have thought with the dry weather that wouldn't have bloomed as much. I think it's been the opposite, and that kind of proves that out. They bloom very heavily and bloomed in all kinds of places there again uh, to put lots of seed on the ground uh, in hopes that if they do not make it, there'll be other seed there for the next succession of saguaro cactus. And, you know, this gives me an idea. Every now and then we have a fifth Saturday, and I think we should do a whole hour on saguaros next time we end up with a a fifth Saturday in the month because it is such an interesting plant. It's... uh, Unlike trees, you, you can't core into a saguaro and look at tree ring study like you can, mm-hmm. but yet they're probably one of the, the oldest surviving plants mm-hmm. in the whole state, uh, very unique to this region. Uh, and you, know, you, you, it's, you can't get the history out of them that you can a, a, a tree ring. Yeah, interesting. I don't know how they wonder how they do age them, but uh, that would be interesting to oh. talk to somebody about that. Back to... Our soil probes. I bought one. It was $40, and it's fiberglass with a metal uh-huh. tip Okay. Um, from Fisher Tools. And what I really liked about it, instead of ha- going around with you know, a screwdriver, a flathead screwdriver, yeah. is it's about three and a half feet tall. So you can stand up and do it. You know, doing one or two trees with a screwdriver, not a big deal. But we have over 50 trees uh, that we manage, and... That takes a long time to go to every single tree, get down on your hands, crawl all the way around it with a. No, is it just a probe or is it a core? Does it take out a core so you can actually see the? It, it's not moisture. a core. It's just okay. a just a straight, a straight probe, straight push probe, and uh, because it is fiberglass, it's got a little bend to it. Mm-hmm. And what I've noticed using it over the course of time, sometimes um, you'll hit, and it'll feel like it's it's hard. Because uh, it's starting to bend a little bit, but as I've gotten used to using it, sometimes the top inch or two might be hard and dry and crusted sure. from the wind and the sun. But you know, to really get accurately, you've got to get down at least five or six inches. And sometimes uh, that top inch or two, like I said, it could be really hard. Mm-hmm. And you get down, and all of a sudden you you, you sink eighteen inches past that. Yeah, and. and- so the so the tell there is that if you're just getting the first few inches wet when you water, it dries out very fast and gets very hard. If you get the water down by watering longer and slower to 12, 16, 18, 24 inches, 
it takes a long time for that to dry out and that plant can go longer between irrigations and or doesn't get as stressed as other plants do if they're you know if there isn't water present there for them so plus you then you have a plant that isn't as likely to blow over or blow down if it's well anchored if the soil if the roots are down a couple of feet and then they're out as wide as the canopy remember roots can't can't sense that there's water over there three or four feet and go find it. That's not how they work. They follow moisture. So if there's got to be moisture present between point A and point B for the roots to get to point B. Okay, and it takes some time. They don't just do that overnight. So you've got to be watering. As the tree gets older, you start moving your water out away from the trunk of the tree. When it's a brand new tree, that's where the roots are. But as it grows, and you can watch as the canopy grows, just the roots should follow. So move your water out correspondingly. You don't need to be watering near the trunk at all at some point. Water also doesn't just go straight down when you put it on the soil. It doesn't just, you know, it doesn't just follow that point of watering completely straight down. It it hits the soil and it starts spreading out like a like a like a a drop of water would look. That's what it does when it goes in the soil. It comes in, and then it starts spreading out through the soil. So you don't have to put it exactly there. It's going to move some. And if you know, if you want to look, you can tell where the soil's wet. It's going to change colors. So water until you've got a good dark soil all the way around the canopy of that tree. That's another way to tell you've watered long enough. That water has you know traveled horizontally through the soil structure and it's gotten that entire area around the canopy of that tree wet you probably watered long enough so it's amazing how well the clays will hold water underneath the surface it yeah our, our soil is very good at retaining water well it has to be and that's that's you know nature's design of desert soils is so they you know they will hang on to a lot of water it doesn't happen very often so, you know, that plant can survive till the next occurrence. Um, but conversely, if you keep it too wet, it will stay wet a long time. And you do get things like root rots and different problems by keeping it too wet. So you do have to monitor by different types of soil. It depends on where you live. If you live, you know, on the foothills of Camelback Mountain or the McDowell's or you know, now we're down to the Santans, you know, as the valley's grown and the, the white, white tanks, tanks are... you know, then as you get up closer to the foothills, the soil structure is obviously going to change. It's going to be rockier, maybe sandier. If you live next to a mountain wa- or a desert wash, you're going to have sandier soils. If you get closer to the rivers and the old valley floor, it's going to be heavier clay. So you got you to pay attention to what kind of soils you have as well. And like you said, it, it, it could change. And where you're looking at your neighborhood, it, it's the developer had flattened it all. But, you know, your house, your backyard could have been an old wash that yeah, or did a couple they, feet Did they down, haul in soil? You could be sitting on top of a filled and compacted soil pad, plant, uh, building pad. So you just don't know. And, and you know, I, I, people often say, well, how come I've got a hedge or a row of plants and – these three are doing fine. This one's growing really fast, and then this one won't grow at all. So, well, when you dig the holes, were they all did they all dig the same? Well, no. I mean, when I was digging, man, I'm going like crazy. I'm digging three, four holes, and then bam, you hit one 
there's caliche or there's rock or there, you know or something. You found where the concrete guy you found cleaned where out the his concrete truck. guy cleaned out his yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so you, you you almost it's it's almost you can't even treat the same plants in the same row the same because the soil might not be consistent all the way down that row of plants. So, so I guess what it really sums it up to be is when you're watering in the desert, uh, understanding the soil is really your main objective, knowing the soil you have and uh, making sure we've got adequate amount of water but also making sure our dry out times the same all you know those sandier soils they're going to dry out a lot faster than the right. clay soils right because they're going they're just going to drain a lot better so knowing the soil and watering to the soil and to the plant uh, is really what we need to make sure we're doing on our homes uh, landscape and gardens and but now i'm really curious jay because i was talking about our my soil probe and you're talking about one that has a core mm-hmm. to pull soil out from below. So you can actually see the coloring and the moisture that is or is not present in that. So it's just like, you know, how we air, core aerify lawns with a little short, hollow tine. It's the same concept, only it's on the, a long probe and you stick it in and then when you pull it out, you've got 18 or 24 inches or whatever of an actual core soil sample. sample. Um, which, you know, it's pretty easy to tell what soil has moisture in it and what doesn't. Um, so, you know, it's just another tool. Uh, you know, we talked about, you know, that. The other thing that people need to do is, you know, with, with technology now and irrigation controllers, I mean, you can set your lawn or landscape up into many different zones or programs so that you don't have to water everything the same. If you go out in your landscape when it's 115, you may have one plant or some type of plant that is a little bit wilty before the other plants are. The big trees don't need watered as often as the little shrubs. The lawn doesn't need it needs watered more often than any of them. If you've got pots, they need watered more frequently, and you can't water it as long as you're just watered, running water out on the ground. So get a get a controller that will allow you to, you know, organize your lawn or your landscape. You know, where somebody's putting in an irrigation system across the street, I think, right now. <laughs> banging and clanging. Depending on how good the soundproofing is, listeners <laughs> may be hearing that. <laughs> um, so you can you can separate that into a you know a number of different zones, a number of, and you can run each one of those independently. So I can run my lawn if I've got grass every other day for a certain amount of time. I can water my pots every two or three days or every day in some cases for a certain amount of time. I can water my trees every couple of weeks for a certain amount of time, so forth and so on. So that's that's another great – you're not just watering everything to the least common denominator, in other words. So – you're always going to have a plant or two. And that that's also a great way to tell when maybe things are getting a little dry. It's great to have an indicator plant in your garden. Say, ah, you know, that uh, Cape honeysuckle in my case, in my gar- yard, it's it's one of the first things to show a little sign of wilt. So when it's getting it's like, okay, well, things are getting close to needing some water if it's wilting. So Having your, your designated, uh, not survival or... It's kind of my moisture meter. Yeah, your, your designated moisture yeah. meter plant. It's kind of just an, what I call an indicator plant. And, you know, having something in the garden that will do that is is a great. And, you know, if you've got a vegetable garden, you need to water it completely different 
than anything else. And you need to water it different from the day it goes in. You know, when we plant those things in January or February, and now here it is June, we're trying to eke out the last few tomatoes that are on there to get them the plants to keep the plant alive till it's ripe. You know, it takes a lot more water. And as the plants grow, same thing as a tree. They need water differently and longer and more water than they did when they were just a little, you know, transplant or seed. One final segment in our outdoor living hour here with Jay Harper right after this. Welcome back in the garden with Jay Harper. And, you know, something interesting, I have an article from the Epoch Times about how to use newspaper to make seed starters. And I thought it was very interesting how few people still get the paper and the paper's telling you how to repurpose it to... (laughs) (laughs) You have to go ask your neighbor for some paper. (laughs) But it was a fun little article for the kids. And You you take a can Uh and you use that as your as a mold as your mold to wrap okay. the paper around and create your little starter cups and obviously the newspaper once you plant it in the ground just yeah and in fact a lot of composting yeah the recipes layering. Mm-hmm. call for using a newspaper yeah. as part of your mulching but gary put the link in today's archive page on if you just so happen to get you still get the newspaper, the newspaper. there's a way to do it and you, <laughs> you need some seed starters for the coming fall season. Um, one thing I wanted to wrap up on lawns and watering is your tuna fish can trick. So that works great for uh, lawns. Um, you know, it, it takes, you know, a couple inches of water a week to grow a sufficient Bermuda grass lawn. Well, tuna, tuna can might be just about two inches. I mean, you don't need the whole two inches, but take take a tuna fish can or something like that and place them in several areas in your lawn. Especially place one in areas that maybe look a little browner than the dark green ones um, so that you can then measure how much water you're delivering to that lawn. And, you, you know, you don't need to run it for an hour. Run it for 10 minutes because that's easy to do the math. So you know that in... In 10 minutes' time, you put whatever it is, let's say a half an inch of water in 10 minutes' time. We know if we need two inches that week, we need to apply four times that, that much water. So whether you do that in one big, long application or you break it up in a couple, you know that's how much water that lawn needs. And, and in that case... You probably do need to, although if you have your lawn zoned properly, let's say your lawn is in three zones, maybe zone one only needs to run for 10 minutes. Maybe zone two needs to run for 12 minutes. And maybe zone three needs to run for eight minutes, just depending on how efficient or how big the zone is or the shape of your lawn to achieve that two inches of water per week. Now, when you apply the water to lawns is also important. The best time, ideal time, is probably from about 4 a.m. to sunrise. That way you, you generally have the calmest conditions. The wind isn't blowing as much. And you're not – the problem with it watering in the middle of the night for lawns, you mentioned about watering at night earlier on drip irrigation. But if we get into the humid time of the year and we're watering at night, we can set ourselves up for some disease problems. If you water it from 4 to 6 in the morning, most of the water will will get down into the soil. 
If there is some remaining excess, that thatch or that area above the soil between the blade and the ground won't stay so wet so long that you can start growing some fungi or different diseases in that turf grass. So water early in the morning. Now the first person is going to say, well, I drive by the golf course and it's water in the middle of the night. We've got 80 acres of grass, <laughs> and you've got people that want to be out there playing in that grass during the day. They don't want to necessarily get wet, although some, some days playing when it's 110, you might want to get wet. Um, they, they have a limited amount of time that they can run all of their irrigation and get the whole course watered. They and also they, have a, a very large budget for applying fungicides. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. And they do them preventatively, <laughs> and they know when the bad time of year is coming, and they apply you know, a fungicide so they don't end up with disease problems uh, down the road. Now, something you may have forgot existed because it's been so long since we've had rain is weeds. Do you remember last fall? It was so wet. We were so overrun by weeds. We had standing water on the ground that the kids actually took the sled that you would take down your saucer for mm-hmm. snow, going mm-hmm. down a snow hill. Yep. They hooked it up to the quad and were dragging each other around the yard because we had so much standing water uh, after some of those rains. Oh, we had, wow. And yeah. the weeds uh-huh. overtook us. So we invested in a lot of different tools to combat the weeds. And I'm ready to attack them, but it's been so long we hardly have any you sprouting. You bought the stuff, now you but can't use it? As, as soon as we get a monsoon rain, you're going to see yeah. weed heads sprouting up everywhere. It doesn't take long. You know, you've got good warm soil temperatures and you put some water on it before stuff's growing. So, again, pre-emergent herbicides applied early in the spring, early in the fall. It's a great way to prevent that. Um, you know, nobody likes weeding, even if you've got the equipment to do it. Um, there are certainly things that I think are more valuable and a better use of time than, than pulling weeds or raking weeds or mowing weeds. So try and prevent them if you can. Um, weeds are also a water Waster. If you've got a lot of weeds in your landscape, they are taking water away from the plants that you're trying to grow. You know, it's a good water-saving tip to keep your landscape free of weeds and also bugs and diseases and everything else. So we want to keep, keep on top of them for sure. Jay Harper of the Farm's Choice Fertilizer, thanks for spending your Saturday morning with us here, getting uh, everyone prepped to go through hopefully not too much more of a I was fun. summer and you know, drought. So today's the 19th. That means in a couple days it's the first day of summer, which is the longest day of the year. That means a few days after that the days start getting shorter, which means fall's on its way. <laughs> how's, how's that way to look at it? That's a glass half full kind of there you go. speech right there. <laughs>